Welcome to a jet-lagged edition of the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from The Al Franken Show, Countdown with Keith Olbermann, Democracy Now!, Ring of Fire, and The Young Turks. Savage is a political reporter with the Boston Globe who has been closely following President Bush's use of signing statements to nullify laws which conflict with his interpretation of executive power. Savage uh, did one of the first comprehensive reports on the story in April of this year and has continued to investigate the President's use of, uh, use of signing statements, which are uh, now attached to more than 800 laws. Uh, I got to tell you, I I read your, your your April piece in preparation for this interview uh, on the president signing uh, statements and uh, uh, Charlie. And by the way, thank you for appearing thank on the show. And quite frankly, it's one of the scariest pieces I've, I've read. Um, let's let's walk people through this. First of all, what's a signing statement? A signing statement is an official document that a president issues on the day that he signs a bill into law. It's different than a proclamation, which in which he says, this is a great law, thank you, Congress, and that's intended for public consumption. A signing statement, although it's not classified, is not intended for public consumption. It's a very technical legal document, and it consists of uh, his interpretation of the law he just signed and instructions to the executive branch about how they're to implement the law now that it's time to execute it. And what President Bush has done far more than any predecessor, in fact, far more than all of his predecessors in American history combined, is to use signing statements to selectively uh, nullify sections of the bills that he's signing by saying that under his interpretation of his own powers as president, as commander-in-chief, and head of the executive branch, this provision, this provision, this provision, that provision, all of which place restrictions or requirements on what the, he must do or what the government under him must do, all of them are, are unconstitutional. And so they don't need to be obeyed as Congress wrote them. And So it's basically the, the president saying, I'm the final arbiter of what's constitutional. Uh, yes, I'm the judge of my own powers. And he has a very sweeping interpretation of his own powers that is not supported by the text structure or history of the Constitution, according to most mainstream legal scholars, including many conservatives. Okay, now, uh, the uh, presidents have been using signing statements since the early 19th century, uh, yet you, you write in your article that legal scholars say that uh, because he is according himself the ultimate interpretation of the Constitution, Bush's use of signing statements is, quote, unprecedented in U.S. history. Uh, well, the scope and frequency of the challenges that he's mounting is what's unprecedented. He, uh, I think the latest count actually puts it at over a thousand laws that he has uh, said he does really? not need to obey. Now, when we say a law there, we're talking about a, a chunk of a statute that does something. So there might be 15 different laws bundled together in a single bill that he says he doesn't have to obey. That's counted as 15. There's probably about 125, 130 bills that he's attached this to. Okay, so, so in other words, uh, there are provisions within a bill. 
Right. But so it's if, almost if like Congress a, bundles together many unrelated things and passes right. them with one vote. It, it's sort of meaningless to look at it as in terms of bills. You have to look at it in terms of statutes. But it's almost like him asserting a line item veto, but which can't be overridden. That is the conclusion of a number of scholars and the American Bar Association, which this summer put together a blue ribbon task force of law school deans and retired uh, judges and former administration officials from both Republican and Democratic administrations to study the use of signing statements. And they concluded that this was becoming a line-item veto that Congress could not override. That is a power that the founders did not want the president to have, and that the whole system just needed to be rolled back. They concluded that it was... Well, the Supreme Court decided that line-item veto itself was unconstitutional and that uh, at least a line-item veto, in theory, would be subject to override. Right. In the 90s, Congress tried to create a line-item veto directly that would allow, uh, at least for spending bills, the president to, to veto something, but then Congress could decide whether or not to override it. Even that, the Supreme Court said, was unconstitutional. They had to take the whole bill or, or, or reject the whole bill. This isn't, you know, literally a veto. It's not, it's, it's sort of a, a quiet, you know, sort of backdoor way of just sort of knowing. Yeah, which is worse. Law. I mean, it's worse in the sense that uh, people don't know about these things. And, and we'll get into, I want to get into some of the stuff that he has, has used this on, and it's shocking. Uh, but I just want to get in uh, the theory of it. David Golov, an NYU law professor who specializes in executive power issues, said that, but this is his quote, uh, that Bush has cast a cloud over, quote, the whole idea that there is a rule of law. What, what, what does that mean? What he means is that by using this asserted power so frequently and so rampantly, you know, huge chunks of laws that Congress has passed just in the last five years are unconstitutional and don't have to be obeyed. That also implies that just, you know, vast swaths of law that were on the books before Bush became president would be unconstitutional for the same reasons. And that just means that, you know, you can't open the federal statutes and say, here's the law, and, and have some predictability about what's going to count and what's not going to count, because, you know, anything could be declared after the fact to be unconstitutional, and therefore... There's, without predictability and certainty about what the law is and what it's not, and that it applies to everyone, uh, the very concept of the rule of law is eroded. Okay, and, and again, he is asserting that he is the final arbiter over what is constitution constitutional. Now, this is one thing I found very shocking. This is from your article. In his signing statements... Bush has repeatedly asserted that the Constitution gives him the right to ignore numerous sections of the bills, sometimes including provisions that were the subject of negotiations with Congress in order to get lawmakers to pass the bill. So in other words, he'll basically say, the executive will say, hey, if you guys put this in, and this in, and this in, uh, I mean, we'll agree to let those go in uh, in order to, uh, for you guys to agree to what we want. And the Congress will go, okay, thank, good, we've made a negotiation. They'll sign the bill, or they'll pass the bill. He'll, when he signs it, he'll say, oh, those things that I uh, negotiated and gave up, I, I'm not going to uh, listen to them. I'm not going to obey them. I'm the, not most, gonna... the most notable example of that that people would be familiar with would be the Patriot Act bill reauthorization earlier this year. 
your listeners may remember that the Patriot Act was going to expire at the end of '05, and that there was in the Senate enough Republicans who were sort of libertarian-minded that they, they and Democrats were able to filibuster the attempt to reauthorize the Patriot Act. They didn't want to get rid of the Patriot Act entirely. What they wanted to do was keep it but have much more oversight. They wanted to write into the law that Congress, the FBI, the Justice Department, had to keep really detailed track of how they were using all these expanded powers to search homes and seize papers and place people under surveillance on U.S. soil, essentially. And they had to keep detailed track of it, and they had to provide reports to Congress by regular, on regular intervals saying, here's how we used it, here's how we got it, what we got out of it, you know, this is the justification for this expanded police power. Bush really didn't want to put that stuff in there, and there was they had you know this ongoing fight, and and they had to have brief extensions of the Patriot Act a couple times. Finally, in February or March of this year, uh, they agreed to write in a whole bunch of oversight provisions uh, as you know the dissidents had wanted. Same powers are still there, but you've got to tell Congress what you're doing with them. Bush agreed to do that. They dropped the filibuster. The law got passed. And then when Bush signed it, he wrote a signing statement that said all those oversight provisions, all those requirements that he must, under all circumstances, give Congress the information of how the Patriot Act is being used, that's unconstitutional because he has an absolute right to withhold information from Congress if he thinks that, you know, disclosing it would interfere with the executive branch operations or national security or whatever. And so... (laughs) You know, this, the deal was, you know, sort of reneged upon. Okay, now, I, I, I don't know, but if I'm a member of Congress, either party, whether I agree with them or not, if, if I believe in my institution, I'm furious. What, what, what is going on? What, why are these guys not up in arms about this? Why isn't there a constitutional crisis? Well, for one thing... I mean, or at least there is one, but why isn't it, uh, uh, why isn't it brought to a head? There's a couple. There's a couple reasons for this. I mean, first of all, Congress, both houses of Congress, are controlled by the same party as the White House right now. And whenever that happens, if it, you know, in the early '90s when the Democrats had had both houses of Congress and the White House, over, it, it, the same dynamic asserts itself. Oversight is markedly reduced because there's a conflict of interest. You don't want to attack your president. And bring down. Yeah, the but it'll drag you down too. I'll give you. I'll give you an example that where that doesn't hold during World War II. Truman uh, did the oversight of the contracting, uh, the war contracting with a Democratic president, a Democratic House, and Democratic Senate, and he really did a good job and went to town on these guys. Uh, it's, it's true that there are exceptions, and there were some. Uh, there was some good after the fact Katrina hearings this year. Uh, Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in the Senate, especially, but as a general rule, the, the, the intensity of the desire to hold the executive branch to account goes down when Congress is run by the same party as the president, regardless of what that party is. That's one rule. Two, so there has been a lot of squawking, but it's mostly been by Democrats. A big exception, though, was Arlen Specter, who's the moderate, sort of semi-maverick uh, Republican chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. He. Uh, declared this to be sort of a grave threat to the Constitution. He, it was a, it, you know, he, he essentially said that it had the potential to become a line-item veto and just sort of the, the whole idea of the Congress writes the law and the president executes it was being eroded. He held a hearing in 
June, uh, in which an administration official had to come and defend the use of signing statements, and he, he you know, sort of chewed her out and later introduced legislation, which then went nowhere, and that was sort of the last we heard of it. But it was designed to sort of roll back uh, the use of signing statements. could have been worse, clearly, but it hardly seems possible that it could have been more controversial. Our third story on the countdown, a student in a computer room at the Powell Library at the University of California at Los Angeles, approached apparently at random by campus community service officers. They ask him to produce his student ID card. He can't or he won't. They leave. Moments later, they return with UCLA campus police officers. Now he tries to leave and the officers taser him again and again as his horrified and angered fellow students watch and one of them records the whole thing on a cell phone and to make the stakes a little higher the student's name was mustafa mustafa tabataba inajad he has already been tasered once as the tape of this extraordinary incident begins continued from there. I'm joined now by Sarah Taylor. She's a reporter for the UCLA campus paper, The Daily Bruin. Thanks for your time tonight, Sarah. Hi. There appear to have been several accounts of the circumstances surrounding the student being hit by the taser. Uh, in the first instance, one was that he refused to leave the library. The other, he was on his way out when an officer grabbed his arm. Do we have any idea what's, what actually is the truth? Have you heard? Well, from what I heard, he was walking towards the door at the time when the two officers approached him. Uh, my understanding is that he did not leave uh, immediately when he was requested to by the community service officers, but that uh, he did leave within just a few minutes of being asked. Is it, is it clear that the only thing that he did originally was not produce this ID card? You know, I wouldn't go so far as to say that anything is clear. However, it does seem that that is what started the incident, yes. The university put out a statement that it says that when he went limp, uh, in the, you can see it in the tape, he went limp uh, for whatever reason and, and deliberately would not stand, would not cooperate with the officers. Is that clear that that's what happened or is there a chance that he simply couldn't stand up because it's pretty clear that he's been tasered here three or probably four times? 
There definitely is a chance that he was unable to stand up. I remember speaking to some sources yesterday who said that uh, Taser does have the ability to incapacitate someone for as many as 15 minutes. So that's definitely a, a possibility. Yes. There was there was also a quote attributed to him as this was happening, where he said that he had he told them he had a medical condition, and they went on with this. Is, have you been able to verify that quote? I have verified the quote, yes, but I don't know what he's referring to. Um, I don't have mm -hmm. any further information. One of the eyewitnesses said that when the other students crowded around the scene, and uh, this went on for some minutes after this, and went down a set of stairs you're seeing here now, when the other students crowded into this scene, they were warned if they got too close, they might be tasered. One of them says when they demanded the officer's badge numbers, they were warned they'd be tasered. Do you know whether or not either of those things happened? Yes, I actually do know that that happened. There's a scene that has been reported to me by several witnesses, and that is actually on a video that I've obviously studied very closely where um, a student asks for his badge and approaches the police officer, and he does threaten to uh, use his taser on that student as well. Obviously, this is being investigated internally at UCLA. Do you know if local police will be investigating what happened here? I have not heard that they will be, no. Has there, been any, has there been any statement from the student? Because it's extraordinary to close this out by saying he was released on his own recognizance after that amount of electricity was put through his body. Has he said anything? No, he hasn't said anything um, on the record yet that I'm aware of, at least not to me. Finally, give me a sense of the, of the campus. Was this the talk of the, of the community at UCLA today? Yeah, it was definitely something students were very concerned about. I had people calling my office um, and emailing me all day today and yesterday. People really, um, the, for the most part, think this was an excessive use and are very concerned that, you know, perhaps something like this could happen to them as well. That's something that I've heard from students. I would imagine. Sarah Taylor, of, uh, reporter of the UCLA Daily Bruin, great thanks for your time uh, on this story. Yesterday, a federal lawsuit was filed against the U.S. government alleging civil rights violations. The lawsuit was filed by Stephen Howards, an environmental consultant in Colorado. He was arrested in June after he approached Vice President Dick Cheney in a mall and denounced the war in Iraq. The lawsuit is the third one that's been filed, charging Secret Service agents or White House staff members violated the law when they attempted to keep people with opposing views away from President Bush or Vice President Cheney. In another suit pending in Colorado, two people say they were kicked out of a public event where Bush was speaking because of an anti-war bumper sticker. And in West Virginia, the ACLU has filed a lawsuit on behalf of two people who were arrested in appearance by President Bush because they were wearing anti-Bush T-shirts. Stephen Howards joins us now from Denver, where he filed the suit on Wednesday in federal district court. Welcome to Democracy Now!
Thank you. It's good to have you with us. Why don't you explain you. exactly what happened? What day was it? Uh, I think it was the middle of June, and um, I was uh, in Beaver Creek, Colorado with my two kids, accompanying them to a piano camp. And um, that morning I'd read about the deaths, the rising death toll in Iraq. And, um, and who walks by me but, but Mr. Cheney? And to be honest, I couldn't resist the temptation. So I approached Mr. Cheney and told him that I thought his policies in Iraq were absolutely reprehensible. Just, just one sec. He, by sure. himself, walked by you in a mall, Vice President Dick Cheney? <laughs> well, you know, uh, yes. Uh, there was apparently, Gerald Ford has an annual kind of get-together of, of political VIPs, if you will, that, I don't know, discuss world issues. And uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, have the opportunity to cross Mr. Cheney. Mr. Cheney was actually going across an outdoor mall, kind of a pedestrian mall in Beaver Creek, Colorado. And there were lots of Secret Service agents, but he was walking through, taking some time, shaking hands. Um, there were probably more Secret Service agents there than there were um, members of Joe Public. But um, I, you know, I waited my turn, and, and I uh, walked up to Mr. Cheney, and I told him what I thought. And then I quickly exited because I didn't want to create a scene or give anyone opportunity to cause me any problems. And so what um, happened then, next? Well, I then continued um, on, took my, my child to piano camp, came back about 10 minutes later, because if you know um, this area, you've got to pass through the same area. And uh, I was approached by a Secret Service agent who um, accused me of assaulting the vice president. My, my eight-year-old son was standing next to me at that point in time. His, his exact words were, did you, did you assault the vice president? And I said, no, I didn't. Um, but I did tell them the way I felt about the war in Iraq, and if um, and if they wanted to, sh if Mr. Cheney wanted to be shielded from public criticism, he should avoid public places. And I closed by telling the agent that um, if freedom of speech was against the law, he should arrest me. Uh, at which point he uh, grabbed me, cuffed my hands behind my back, and started carting me across the mall. I stopped and told him I could not abandon my eight-year-old son in the middle of a public mall at which point he responded, we'll call social services. Um, fortunately, on the way out, we passed my wife, who um, my son was with my wife. He had run off in terror. He wouldn't even talk. He was so scared. Um, they took me to jail with my hands cuffed behind my back for three hours. Uh, the Secret Service agent told my, my wife, myself, and anyone else that would listen that I was being charged with assaulting the vice president. Those charges were later reduced to harassment. And two weeks later, or three weeks later, the charges were dismissed altogether. What happened to you during that time? Um, during that two weeks, did other people see you being arrested? Did they know who you oh, were? Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. Oh uh, no, it was it was it was a scene. I was uh, I was treated as though I was a convict, like criminal. I was it was horrifying for my kids, um, and. Um, so we waited uh, for a few weeks. Actually, we, we left. We were going on vacation. We left a few days later. This actually happened two days before Father's Day, so it was quite a memorable Father's Day, as you can imagine. Um, we left a few days later for our vacation, and when we got back in the mail, uh, there was a notice that the charges had been dismissed. Um, apparently, the Secret Service had come to my, my office um, and, uh, to try to see me, um, and uh, they would not leave their names. <laughs> it was... It was very Gestapoish, I must say, and um, but 
but I never returned their calls, and I have no reason why they came to my place of work. And, and uh, that's it. And why have you decided to sue the government now? You know, because it's such a transparent attempt to suppress free speech. Um, you know, there, we view the suppressiveness of free speech and the, my family, we view the suppression of free speech and the assault that this administration has made on our constitutional rights to free speech as a greater threat to the future of this country than Osama bin Laden ever will be. Um, you know, first, the, this administration argued that if you criticize their policies, um, you were, in fact, providing support to people like Osama bin Laden. You were, you were boosting the, the threat to national security. Then they suggested that if you oppose their policies, you are actually um, uh, equivalent to a no Nazi sympathizer. Uh, you know, the, the, the nation is united on the need to fight terror. Uh, that's not an issue. The question is, the issue is how this administration has gone about choosing to do that. And lots of people are very upset about that. And now the administration has forged the final link by suggesting that um, if you exercise your constitutional rights to free speech in opposing this administration's policies in Iraq, you are therefore uh, posing a threat to national security and subject to arrest. And I don't know about the rest of America, but I find that thought and that logic, that twisted logic, absolutely terrifying. So, so we brought the lawsuit to really expose this issue and to raise the question of, do we in fact still live in a free nation where people are free to express their opposition to, the govern to government policies? What are you and asking right now, for? Okay, right now, we're, we're asking for a jury to, uh, we're actually, actually deferring to a jury to decide what the, um, uh, you know, what the resolution to this matter should be. Um, what we're asking for is, is some acknowledgement by the Secret Service and by the administration that people have a right to free speech. We're asking for an apology to my kids uh, um, for, the, for, the, for the wrongful arrest and search that occurred. Um, and if any financial uh, rewards or any financial settlement comes of this, um, that's great, but that's not, the, that's not the goal of the lawsuit. And if any financial rewards come, we're, you know, they'll, they'll go to a charitable organization. That's not our goal here. Isn't the our vice goal here is to prove a point. Isn't the vice president immune from prosecution as he sits in office? Uh, yeah, well, actually, this is, this, this is a civil suit, and it's against the, the Secret Service officer who did the arrest. After he uh, arrested us um, and, again, uh, threatened my wife and myself, saying he was going to spend all day Monday in the U.S. Attorney's Office ensuring that, that assault, felony assault charges were brought against us, he then gave us his business card. So uh, we know exactly who arrested us, and this is actually a civil suit against a Secret Service agent. Stephen Howards, I want to thank you very much for being with us again arrested a few days before Father's Day on harassment charges, first on assault charges, then lowered to harassment charges for approaching Dick Cheney in a mall uh, in Colorado.
So, Bobby, we have Mike in Boston listens on WKOX 1200 AM. Mike, how are you today? I'm well, thank you. Good. Thank you for taking my call. Of course. I want to talk, I want to, talk about the presidential signing statements. <laughs> um, I did a little bit of research on these. It seems like the first person who really started using them to set policy as opposed to just uh, discussing what the laws meant was Ronald Reagan, and Ed Meese was his advisor on that. Before, but, before Meese went to prison. What a surprise. <laughs> no, no, no surprise at all. It seems to have really been um, an issue that's been going on since since the Reagan years. I mean, Bush one used it, Clinton even used it, and of course, the current president is using it to the point of abusing it. And I want to know what kind of recourse we have against that. I was reading the um, American Bar Association Board, and they want to have um, Congress pass laws that says you have to explain the presidential signing statements. Yeah, I mean, this this presidential signing statement has been like a free ride. I mean, the latest thing, as you know, it just it's it's nauseating, is there's, you know, the last report was supposed to tell us whether or not or how badly we were getting clobbered in Iraq, how, how many soldiers really were being lost, why they're being lost, what we could do to change things, what the CIA thought about it, what the NSA thought about it. Now, but Bush looked at it, and he said, no, you know, I... First of all, I'm going to use I'm going to use a signing statement to change what I or to edit what I want in in virtually any report. I mean, any report coming across his desk now, he looks at it and he says, "No, I think the American public is too stupid to he understand." She read the reports. No, he doesn't read it. But but Carl Rove reads and says, "Hey, you know, George, the the American public is too too stupid to understand that we're getting killed in in, in Iraq. Therefore, let's not put it in the report, or we, we don't want to scare the American public into really." understanding that they're at greater risk right now than they have ever been in their life because of terrorism and because of our policies. So let's rewrite it. Let's just put what George Bush in damn la-la land wants to say in his signing statement. That's what's happening every day. It's like we're being told whatever Karl Rove wants us to know, and George Bush, before he signs anything, edits it, changes, takes stuff out, makes his own comment, changes it, the, the whole context if he wants to. I'm hoping you can give us an idea of what we can do to start to, to fight this. I mean, By, we can fight a congressman, but... What more than that? Bobby, what can you do? Well, you know, the signing statements are illegal. The Supreme Court has already made a finding uh, on almost an identical issue, which was the line-item veto, that it's illegal. The Congress passes laws and submit them to the president. He can either sign them or he can veto them. He can't selectively sign them. That's what the line he tried to do with the line item veto, and the Supreme Court said you can't do that. That's still Supreme Court's precedent and still stands. So what he's doing is illegal. It's unconstitutional. The president is sworn to uphold the laws of the United States and to make sure they're enforced. That's not his interpretation of the law or his wish about what the law said, but it is the law. And, you know, if the president has this new power that he is asserting to take laws that were created by Congress and submitted to him to completely rewrite those laws from scratch, which is what he's saying he can do, and say they don't apply to me, <laughs> then he is a king, he is not a president. And the Constitution doesn't provide for that. And it's just, it's all illegal. It's just that we have a doormat Congress. You know, the remedy is not to pass some new law. We have it in the United States Constitution, which makes this illegal. The problem is we have a doormat Congress that's not calling them to task for it. You know, the Congress, the first thing the Congress should do, I mean, really, this is an impeachable offense. It's classic 
overreaching and abuse of power. And that is what, you know, that's what high crimes and misdemeanors means. When the founders wrote the Constitution and put that phrase high crimes and misdemeanors, it was a term of art at that time for abuse of power. It was. It didn't mean you had to actually had to be convicted of a crime. Although the president has committed many crimes by his own admissions, you know he's he's violated FISA when he wiretapped the American citizens. So that is a high crime by itself. But what the the impeachment remedy is meant to address is an abuse of power, and this is a classic abuse of power. He's he's trying to change the whole form of government by saying you know we no longer have a three part government. We just have. The president and I decide what the rules are, and Congress is totally irrelevant. And unfortunately, we have a Congress that, you know, that is willing to go along with you know, it. It's unconstitutional. The, we just need a Congress with a backbone. The best example is December, is where, where there was this request for scientific information that was prepared by government researchers and scientists, you know, were supposed to transmit that, that information to Congress so, so the media could get it, so Congress could make decisions. Well, Bush's signing statement says that the, the president can tell researchers to withhold information from Congress if he wants to. He can tell researchers that may have, re- that may have research that could affect your children, your grandchildren uh, for generations, that he can tell them to withhold information and, and not to disclose anything if he thinks, in his opinion, that it could somehow impair uh, national security. That's his big one right now. Everything's national security. You know, I don't, wanna, I don't want this stuff about global warming out there because it's about national Security. I don't want to talk about the fact that we're killing people, torturing them, completely contrary to the Geneva Convention, because it's going to affect national security. Well, he doesn't want to talk about those things because he ought to be prosecuted for them, because the people who work for him should be prosecuted for those acts. So he's using the signing statement to hide behind what he knows he could not ordinarily do, but you have a media that doesn't get it. you got a Congress that's a bunch of lapdog floor mats. They don't care. So this guy has a free reign to do everything. It's like giving him, say, here's this, here's the scepter and the crown. You are now the king. continues to be a dispute about why campus police at the University of California at Los Angeles, UCLA, tasered a student multiple times. Perhaps it can be settled in court. In our number three story on that countdown, that student, Mustafa Tabatabinajad, plans to file a federal civil rights lawsuit against the UCLA police, claiming brutal, excessive force and false arrest. We showed you some of this tape last night from a cell phone recording by one of the students who was watching in horror. We will play a longer composite of the nearly seven-minute video presently. But in the first unrecorded moments, community service officers asked Mr. Taba Tabinajad to produce his student ID card in the computer room of the Powell Library at UCLA. He refused, 
He said it was because he felt he was being singled out due to his Middle Eastern appearance, according to his lawyer, who will join us here in a moment. Later, he says he decided to leave the library, but an officer refused to take his hand off of him. So the student fell limp in protest, and the video begins sometime after that. As promised, the civil rights lawyer representing the student in this case, Stephen Yagman. Thank you for your time tonight, sir. Good to see you. To, to the most disputed part of this first, according to that UCLA police account, he refused to leave, then he went limp. Now UCLA is saying the police used the taser only after he had urged other students to join in this resistance. But the eyewitnesses say that your client was in the process of leaving when an officer grabbed his arm. What is your client's account of that start of that process? First of all, I need to say it's horrible to watch that. Yes, it it's is. It's just horrible. Uh, we're here in America. This was at a university and a library. It's awful. Uh, they tased him when he was limp on the ground, and it, it's just horrible. Your, your client did obviously go limp, and, and much later at the end of the ordeal, after the police had, had hit him with this taser device several times, we finally see the officers dragging him out. Why didn't the officers just drag him out when, when he first went limp? I mean, what is, what is the, the, is there contention that he did not comply exactly with what they told him to do? Keith, I can't speak for them. Uh, I know what I see and I know what my client uh, Mustafa has told me. They're basically ill-trained law enforcement officers uh, who have aggressive and violent tendencies, which is very common in Southern California, as you probably know, that it has uh, migrated to a university campus is kind of astonishing, but really not so astonishing. The police in the tape obviously not only don't alter their approach when the other students uh, plead with them or try to confront them. One officer, as we saw, even tells another student to get back over there or you'll get tasered too. Does it, do you feel like that something like this just escalates to, to where there's no sense of proportion anymore, that the, that the, the officers just don't have any, any connection to reality after a certain point when this gets started? I don't. I think that is reality. I think the reality of the situation is that these are violent police officers who are not properly trained, who aren't under the control of the civilian authorities at the university. I can't imagine they're under the control of the authorities. And um, they're just kind of unto themselves doing what they want. And we can't have that in a civilized democratic society.
and how this started. Random ID checks in the in the library at 11:30 at night, except they just happened to pick the Iranian kid. They just happened to pick him, and and he was intelligent enough because he's gotten a good education at UCLA uh, to suggest that they go uh, get the ID of all the white guys sitting there, so that he could feel assured that he wouldn't have to participate in his own racial profiling. He didn't he didn't want to participate in them ro racially profiling him, but they didn't want to do that, which I think is the proof that he was being racially profiled. He finally finished the work he was doing on his computer for a paper that was due Wednesday morning, and he decided to leave rather than hang around, and he was leaving, which is when they pounced on him. When they pounced on him, he decided to go limp because uh, if he was passive, he thought nothing would happen to him. That didn't work. And uh, then when they started uh, brutalizing him, it was kind of like a rape. Uh, he started screaming because he intelligently believed that if he called attention to what was going on, it would be less likely for the police to continue to brutalize him. Um, but that didn't work either, and the police turned on the people who were telling the police to stop. It, it's awful. It's, it's just horrible to watch. Yeah. Is there, there was some report originally that he at some point said, your client at some point said, I have a medical condition. Do you know if that's true? Yes, it is true. Um, uh, and God forbid he had had a pacemaker or something yeah. in him. They could have murdered him. So, is the uh, what is the status of this suit? Can you update us on the on the uh, the, the blank facts of the uh, of the potential legal case here? Well, sure, I can. We were retained just yesterday. Uh, sometime next week, when I get back to Los Angeles, I live in New York, but I work in Los Angeles. I commute. Uh, I'll draw up a lawsuit, and hopefully, uh, maybe next Wednesday or the Monday after. Uh, we'll file it in federal court alleging police brutality under the Federal Civil Rights Act. We'll see how it turns out. Other extraordinary videotapes have been somehow made to mysteriously, uh, the meaning at least, mysteriously disappear. I don't know how this one could happen that way. Uh, Stephen Yagman, the attorney for the student in the UCLA incident, thanks for your time tonight. Thank you. Where do you go with your broken heart and soul? What do you do with the left over you? And how do you know? When to let go, where does the good go, where does the good go? Look me in the eye and tell me you don't find me attractive. Look me in the heart and tell me you won't go. Look me in the eye and promise no love's like I love. Look me in the heart and unbreakable. Now, uh, it's another stunning story. Again, didn't get much coverage. Uh, it's in the Rocky Mountain News. And these things, I, the country has slipped so out of control that, you know, everything seems to be normal now. Uh, Steve Howard's on June 16th is walking his 7-year-old son to piano practice. Dick Cheney happens to be in the area, and he thinks, oh, great, let me go speak. Cheney was uh, giving a speech, so his entourage was there. It wasn't like Dick Cheney was walking by. <laughs> right, right, of course. And he had just... Uh, gotten out of his bunker, and uh, and Steve, hello bunker. <laughs> Steve thinks I'm an American, and I disagree with the vice president's uh, you know views in Iraq at least, and I'd like to go tell him a piece of my mind. I mean, I don't know a right more fundamental to America. He saw Cheney with a group of people in an outdoor mall area, shaking hands, posing for pictures. So Cheney is engaging the public, shaking hands, posing for pictures. 
So he goes up there, and he said, remember, he's got a seven-year-old son with him. It's not like some, you know, oh, wow. You know, his name is Steve Howards. It's not like uh, Abdullah Abdullah went up. His name's not Steve Al Howards. Right. And I remember a day, of course, this, uh, I'm ethnically Muslim. This is more relevant to me. I remember a day when Abdullah Abdullah was an American citizen like everybody else and could go up to the vice president and say something. I know those days are long gone, but in this day... So he walks up to him, and he gets within about two to three feet of him. Right. It's like he comes up and touches him. Right exactly. Now. And he simply says, I think your policies in Iraq are reprehensible. Boom! Ow! Bam! <laughs> <laughs> again, read it again. I think your policies in Iraq are reprehensible. Like the guy pulled his... It's not even... What's that? It's not even... It's hardly even... It's not confrontational. It's not even that angry. It doesn't have any curse words in it. Not that he couldn't. Why can't you? T- the vice president tells people to F off all the time. He does I, it to senators. Why can't he say, I think your policies in Iraq are effing reprehensible, you blank. He, I thought this was America, but he didn't say any of that. So, so All he, he said was, I think your policies in Iraq are reprehensible. Or words to that effect, he says, and then, and then he walks away. And then he walks away. Ten minutes later. Ten minutes later, Secret Service comes up to... Steve Howards, he's, was, wa- he's still walking around the same area. With it, well, while he still has a son, and they say to him, "You're under arrest." He asked if he had assaulted the vice president. Assaulted the vice president. I mean, I guess that's what they think assault is these days. How dare you say anything that doesn't agree with Dick Cheney? You're under arrest. Handcuffs in front of his son went to the Eagle County Jail. Now, I look. I, I mean, I don't. I'm. I, like everybody else, I'm a little outraged out, but I don't know what we're supposed to do. I, other than voting <laughs> in November 7th, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. How can they arrest American citizens for, for exercising their freedom of speech? How can they get away with that? What am I supposed to do? How does Dick Cheney not say, hey, fellas, that's no problem. Let it go for crying out loud. I mean, I understand if the secrets, when he says, I think your policies in Iraq are reprehensible. I understand if the Secret Service takes note. From a protection point of view, from the vice president, I right? don't understand that no, at all. No, no, I, not in America. No, no, in, I, in the Soviet place, Union, hey, in Kazakhstan. Let me make my let, let me make my point. The Secret Service has one job to protect him from harm, right? So when I say that they look closer at that guy, and I literally mean look, like maybe stand in front of Cheney. Oh, okay, yeah, that's sure. all I'm saying. Right. And then the guy walks away, and they're like, "Okay, stand down." I get that. They I, mean, walk, I just meant they don't they don't get to write his name down. No, they don't get to do anything. They get to stand in front of that guy and Cheney. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and then according to what next, what happens was this guy he led away in handcuffs to Eagle County. There was a summons issued for harassment for him, issued by the Secret Service agent. Eventually, the charges were dismissed, but uh, Howard's is uh, filing a lawsuit. Well, first of all, you know Howard's is right because the charges were dismissed. You think if he actually assaulted the vice president that the charges would be dismissed? Three weeks later. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Who thinks that? No one thinks that. You know, and, and you know what? At the time, it was obvious that the Secret Service didn't think he was a threat. If they thought he was a threat, they'd have taken his ass down immediately. No, what happened was he walked away. And Dick Cheney, t- at some point, told the Secret Service, go get that guy. How dare he say anything against me? I am the all-powerful vice president. And the Secret Service went and found him several minutes later when he clearly wasn't a threat and had already walked away, and they never thought he was a threat in the first place, and asked him if he'd assaulted the vice president and arrested him. Here, right here, in Colorado, United States of America, what has this country come to? Pilgrims in the parking lot. Arteries clogged with blood clots Pushing through the aisles of department stores Neon
long crosses and Christmas lights, credit card debts and brand new bikes. The holidays are here and we're still at war. The rabbi reads from the testament, the banker gazes at the year's investment, salvation Santa solicits for the poor. Deception of democracy, the philanderings of faux foreign policy. The holidays are here and we're still at war. Smoggy skies and fixed elections and justice strikes from all directions. People with their backs against the floor. Looking for someone to set us free. King with fists like Muhammad Ali, the holidays are here and we're still at war. Prophets of oppression grow like never before. All hail to the capitalist thief, the moan your lost ones and cover our grief. The holidays are here and we're still at war. Hurricane waters ravage southern towns, and black and brown people are left to drown while the White House and the emergency management agency ignores. Victims seek shelter in the Astrodome, and the National Guard says don't go home. The holidays are here, and we're still at war. Police officers hassle the homeless, domestic disputes, alcohol and violence. The jailhouse opens wide its door. A corporation cuts a million employees, and the factory is moving overseas. The holidays are here, and we're still at war. Our mother knows what is best for you. Hearts to listen. Your father knows he can count on you, though you couldn't count on him. Jesus sheds another tear into a sea of two thousand years into the eve of a new year once more. Tears of joy, resolution, sorrow, toast to health and wealth tomorrow. The holidays are here and we're still at war. Religious wars and domination, world trade and globalization, the prices of petroleum soar. Lonesome churches are packed with sinners, non-believers and new beginners. The holidays are here, and we're still at war. 
say a prayer for the less fortunate Prisoners and soldiers you never have met Understand what it is they're fighting for Say a prayer for your enemies Say a prayer for the victims and their families The holidays are here and we're still at war Yes, the holidays are here and we're still at war Happy winter holiday, everybody. And that is actually what I refer to this season as. I like that because it uh, simultaneously includes and excludes all traditional established, religious or otherwise, holidays, uh, depending on how you use it. Personally, I use it to uh, exclude all other holidays by uh, actually defining what winter holiday is. It's not, it's not like saying happy holidays, but winter holiday itself has been defined by me as um, starting, let's say, uh, the weekend before Thanksgiving and going through um, New Year's. But it always kind of trails off a little bit at the end because really the point is that I enjoy winter. And so holidays or not, uh, I just go around for about two and a half months uh, basking in the fact that it's not 115 degrees and smoggy in Sacramento. So um, that's the holiday that I'm celebrating every day. So uh, I figured this is a, as good a time as any to uh, kick that off. And that song you just heard, it, it was actually, I mean, maybe you could tell by the lyrics, but it was actually written for the 2005 holiday season, um, but it's quite applicable to this day. And now, after what seems like months of inadvertently stalling, I am going to finally fulfill a promise that I've made to um, answer my own question and tell the story of how I got interested in uh, politics and talk radio. And uh, I feel, at least with the people on the message board who've been uh, asking about it, I feel like it's so overhyped that um, you simply have to prepare to be disappointed. But here it goes. Uh, about, um, I don't know, time flies, but maybe three years ago, three and a half years, I was still working at what was my first job, um, just at a, at a pizza place, um, you know, right down the street from my high school where all my friends worked. And so we all got jobs there. And uh, eventually I became a delivery driver. And over time, of course, you get tired of all the music you have in your CD collection. And this is before, uh, before I ever had an iPod and before podcasts existed. And so I thought, well, how interesting would it be to check out some talk radio? <clears throat> and I had really never dived into that at all in the past and, and didn't, didn't nearly have the concept of how conservative it was at the time. But I turned it on, and I remember very clearly two different uh, instances. You know, whether I heard them on the same day or very close to each other, there are two things that were being said by conservative hosts that simply floored me. And one was by Laura Ingram, and I just happened to turn it on during a uh, pro-choice rally in Washington. And so Laura Ingram was talking about this pro-choice rally, and what she said was, 
look at how, I'm paraphrasing obviously, look at how disgusting it is all of those women bringing their daughters to a rally like that. If they had all had their way, none of those little girls would have ever existed. And I thought to myself, are there actually people who hear that on the radio and think it to be literally true? Or do all of her listeners understand that she is, I mean, speaking nonsense and just kind of lashing out in anger at at people who disagree with her on, on a sensitive policy issue, but, uh, you know, I, I was kind of stunned, I mean, frankly, because of course there are some people who actually believe that, there, of course there are people who are that dumb, but on, on the scale of stupidity, that doesn't, I think, compare with the next story, which is um, something that was said by uh, a male host, I have no idea who he was, if he's a national or local guy. And he was just talking about the 2000 election. So, you know, this is 2003, probably, 2002, 2003. So it had been several years, but, you know, everyone on the left was still bitching about the 2000 election. And so this guy, was with uh, he came through with his clever retort. And what he said was, you know, sure, you can analyze the election in many ways, uh, you know, oh, sure, Gore got the popular vote, and, you know, Florida was messed up, and, you know, so all the liberals think that George Bush doesn't really have, uh, you know, the, the authority to, to do these things because he doesn't have the full backing of the country, or, you know, whatever kind of argument he was making. But he said, but here's the, the statistic that they never tell you. And this is the one that will really give you a clear picture of how this country feels. If you break down the 2,000 vote by area of square mileage, then it's a complete blowout for Bush. And he gave the numbers, however many, 3 million square miles to 100,000 square miles for Gore. And... I thought, you know, of course, this was before all of the ridiculous comments that were made on Fox News about um, California is more dangerous than Iraq because more Americans get killed in California than they do in Iraq, even though they're the same geographical size. Not taking into consideration that there's 30 million Californians and only 150,000 Americans in Iraq, but... That level of stupidity coming through with such earnestness from someone on the radio reaching actual listeners, it, I was hooked. I, I couldn't not... I, it, conservative radio is like listening to... Or, you know, it's like driving by a car crash and you just can't pull your eyes away and just grimace the whole time because of how horrific it is. Um, and about six months later, Air America came to Sacramento, and uh, the rest is history. And finally, the very last thing, if everything works out to plan, 
you may notice that this show will show up twice in the feed, uh, in, in, the, in the podcast feed. One of them will be an enhanced version of the podcast, only available to uh, listen to uh, either in iTunes or on an iPod. And the other version will be the same standard uh, MP3 that uh, I've been putting out for months now. And this is just an experiment going along with uh, if the show becomes uh, a regularly uh, extended, you know, two or three hour show, then I think it's a very fair compromise to, uh, to provide it in an enhanced version that is divided by chapters and uh, can be easily uh, accessed, you know, because certainly I wouldn't expect people to listen to the whole thing all the way through, and so it'll be easy to uh, find your place or find the next show, uh, however you want to do it. So um, check it out. If you can, if you can do the enhanced uh, show, check that out. Let me know what you think. If, uh, if it came to uh, it being a longer show, but if it was enhanced, you know, does that make you feel better about it? Anything like that, um, please uh, email either hippiesympathizer at gmail.com or go to Best of the Left Podcast, find the link to uh, the, uh, the forum, the message board, and there's already a conversation going on about it there, and you can leave your comments in uh, the proper place. Have a good one, everybody. Shining shoes.